film was shot by Sean Bobbitt. He masterfully replicates the visuals of 1960s Chicago, inspired by Kodachrome and Ektachrome. Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we discuss character, truth, and politics in Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. I'm not much on rear window ethics. Of course, they can do the same thing to me. Watch me like a bug under a glass if they want to. I will literally die trying to win the world's strongest man to prove that. I'll do anything. Anything that achieves efficiency and maximizes profit. Profit, which I will then use to rebuild my country. Do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the little man? What do you mean, the little man? That was me they were talking about. I almost died. That was me. I'm not lying, okay? I just didn't remember it, that's all. You know your father was injured in college. You know that. You know all about that. War is politics with bloodshed. Politics is wrong without bloodshed. Now, what'd that mean? It means every time the pigs shoot down an unarmed brother and sister in the street, man daily pull the trigger. It means Tricky Dicky Nixon is the fattest, most filthy pig in the pig. Well, that's because it's a hard movie to talk about for a lot of reasons. Because, I, I don't know, I just feel like a lot of the ones that we've tackled have been unique and really easy ways to talk about. Like, that uh, stage adaptation, was that a sense of limited? Has, like, a lot of unique things for a movie. I feel like this, like, the subject matter itself is very... Like, there's a lot you could talk about, I guess, if you knew about it, which I don't yeah. really. But, like, as a movie, I don't think it's, like, unique to, you know, it's not, like, groundbreaking as a as a medium. And that's the other thing, like, the subject matter itself, because, well, I, that's what I liked about the movie, because you kind of know about the Black Panthers, but, at least for me, not really. Like, not, I, you know, I knew they were kind of, like, a militant civil rights group, but that was about it, so... I thought it was kind of cool to get a look behind the curtain, I guess. I wonder if that makes it more difficult to talk about, like if you're going to analyze it or something or comment on it, not knowing as much about it. That that was kind of the thing that I was concerned about when you said you wanted to do this one, because it, it is an overtly political film. And, you know, it covers, like you said, in the American education system, there's not really anything taught about the Black Panthers or... You know, I had never even heard of the Rainbow Coalition, if I'm being honest. And then from the filmmaking standpoint, I think it's like you said, you know, it. I think it is really solid filmmaking. I think Shaka did a great job, but it's not groundbreaking. You know, it's not like Citizen Kane. It's not like a bottle movie. It's not like this unique adaptation of some other work. I guess we could, one one lens through which we could view the film is the film as a biopic, right? And then kind of like talk about that form and how it functions and how this film differs from other other films in that genre. I don't even have that many talking points. You know, I have a couple of little tidbits probably, but I guess we'll just get into it and see what happens. A little tidbit episode. Because I like Daniel Kaluuya. Kaluuya. Yeah. I loved his performance. I'm sure he was in Black Mirror, wasn't he? I think he did an episode, yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah, and, and Get Out, I saw that. Well, I thought he did a great job in this one. 
And Lakeith Stanfield was also in Get Out, so I wonder if that's why he was also with Daniel Kaluuya in this one. Looks like he was in uh, Uncut Gems, too. Yeah, he was uh, who brought clients to yeah. Adam Sandler. There you go. That was Lakeith. But Lakeith, I mean, is a well-established actor in his own right, you know, outside of Get Out. He's he's one of the names, because Shaka is, you know, looking to cast notable black actors in his film about Fred Hampton. So I feel like, if not obvious choices, obvious forerunners would be Kaluuya and uh, Stanfield. So the film we're talking about today is Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. Here's, you know, I think this might be a shorter episode just because... I don't know how much depth we can go into anything, but I guess a fun point to start off on is just the title. I think it's such a great title. It's, I don't know, it really is attention-grabbing, right? It's Judas because of Bill O'Neill? He's like a traitor to the cause? Yeah, well, I mean, he, you know, traded, I don't know, like, right? (laughs) He, He basically sold fred down the river and at there there's that final scene in the bar with uh jesse plemons and he gives him silver keys for his uh gas station visual allusion to the bible story of judas oh i I guess i really enjoy things that repurpose biblical narratives like we've, we've talked about oh well the last episode was the fountain right which is repurposing the creation story with Adam and Eve. I don't know, like East of Eden and all that stuff. I just, I guess those are both the creation story with Adam and Eve. But (laughs) I I think it's such a different title, right? Judas and the Black Messiah. It's not something you hear every day. I also liked um, how Hoover in his speech, you know, he talks about a Black Messiah so that makes me wonder if that was actually like a phrase, you know, that was in their briefings, if they talked about this concept of a black messiah riling up, you know, the the Negro subclass in the United States in that time. Yeah, that's what I always wonder about with these movies. Like, it's based on true events, but like, obviously it's a movie. So how much of it can you take away as fact and, you know, what parts of it are for artistic effect what's so great about the movie is that fred hampton is one of he's like portrayed as one of those like leaders like martin luther king probably more like malcolm x i think well if i recall right i think malcolm x at one time was on you know the peaceful side of protest and another side the other right and obviously the black panthers are more militant but he's like a guy with a vision and a dream and he's trying to lead people to it and I think that's what's so com- com- compelling about these leaders is that like they, they, they have a vision and they see the future like that. Uh, was that thing from Uncharted Lucas, the white um, dreamers of the day? That's what they are. Yeah. They act their dreams out with open eyes. That is really frustrating too, because of all uh, you see what they're up against and they're trying to combat it. And like the kind of the impotency, I guess of the system just trying to rage against the machine because you wonder like what like what you would do and how, or how you would fight against it and try to affect change 
I was reading online after watching the film and they were kind of discussing the real life events surrounding the shooting of Fred Hampton. And because at the end there's the title card where the families in, of the, the Panthers sued the government for the unjust raid or, or the killing, or I'm not exactly sure like what the actual suit was about. But I think it was either that case or, you know, a case revolving around the same events where it came down to it and the government, like in order to proceed with the legal case, they're going to have to depose the people there. And the government chose to just pay out because apparently like three or four of the Panthers in the house at the time were on their payroll, right? Which is crazy. Just, and I think mm -hmm. you even get a notion of that, of the level of infiltration or subterfuge that was going on with, you have the other Panther who comes into town and he's also an informant and you have the guy at the bar and I think it did a good job of showing, you know, we're not exactly sure who can be trusted and, and how deep it goes. Well, because back, like, looking at Black History, like, they had Martin Luther King, like, under investigation, the FBI. It's so crazy to the modern psyche. Yeah, I found, I think, um, like, he didn't even have a lot of screen time, but Martin Sheen's character of Hoover, I feel like he was very effectively used with his opening speech and, like, the phone call of just portraying what the mindset was at the time, right, with... His opening monologue, he says, the greatest danger to the United States is not the Russians, it's not the Chinese, it's the Black Panther movement. And one thing that I didn't know about was how socialist it was, right? The very limited teachings that were given about it in the public education system in the U.S. is, you know, oh... It's part of the civil rights movement. It's more militant, you know, than the marches and uh, Martin Luther King and other facets of that movement at the time. But they never really talk about the social programs, you know, the free lunches, the education, the health care, the clinics, all of this good that they were doing, which watching it now, you know, I don't know the history, but I feel like that might even be more of a reason that the government was on their case so hard, not just because they want to solve the disenfranchisement of black and other underrepresented communities, but also because they have this heavily socialist tilt, right? Fred was saying, mm -hmm. we don't fight capitalism with black capitalism, we fight it with socialism, which is not something yeah, that, that Americans handle light, will take lightly, right? I think it was well past the McCarthy era, right? Like that was probably more Cold War, like 60s. And this was late 70s. Even today, it gets a lot of pushback. That was interesting as an idea that you see more people talking about it on online at least. But I don't want to go too far that way because there's that one scene towards the end where they had, um, I don't know who, what, who it was, but it was one of the Black Panthers that, um, I guess his buddy had, had been killed in police custody after killing some cops. And then he's, so there was a guy in the camper trailer, right? 
Mm-hmm. Do, do you know do you know who he was he was like a he was was he a policeman or he had like a connections to to the cops because he was I asking him like for information but i thought he was the guy who worked at the hospital oh okay yeah that makes sense the one that he passed that was mopping yeah but anyways like when he go he goes out in a blaze of glory and scene two with the shootout with the police at the headquarters yeah you would just wonder what it would be like and what you would you know what it what it would be like in that situation it's an extreme human experience that was a point that i i really liked where i felt like there was an effort to be at least somewhat even-handed in the representation of events when jake winters is standing over the cop that he's downed and he's pleading for his life and then jake shoots him point blank in the face you know right before he gets gunned down because like you said it's a historical event you know there are things that really happened but at the same time it's the filmmaker's responsibility to tell an engaging story right so i i feel like that's the challenge with biopics or films depicting real life events like dark waters or spotlight or the report is because you have to both in a way serve the truth but also make a compelling story and so i feel like the challenge is keeping i guess the heart or the essence of the story intact while allowing enough room for creative liberties right so i, I wish i had more knowledge i you know, I could have stood to do some actual research on the topic, but other than, you know, Fred and Bill, I don't know the veracity of any of the characters, but an example is you could create a character who's a stand-in, right? Like perhaps the the FBI officer played by Jesse Plemons isn't a, a real person, like, obviously, Bill had a handler, right? But I doubt that Shaka and the other screenwriter had access to files on how he was handled, on what their conversations entailed. And so all of that had to be invented. And then it's ultimately the responsibility of the filmmaker to invent those aspects of the story in such a way that they don't you know, do a disservice to the truth of the narrative, which I think can be really challenging. And I know I watched an interview just today by Shaka talking about his film, and he w he had Fred Hampton Jr. on set for most of the filmmaking, uh, most of the, the production, and he said he was really relieved to have that oversight because otherwise it would be all on him and he would be unsure if when the film came out, if people would be upset or find it dishonest or leaning too far to one side. And so I feel like just having, you know, enough eyes on with perhaps different perspectives or, you know, Fred Hampton Jr. had perhaps a, a greater involvement in the story, you know, and um, having grown up with, you know, firsthand, firsthand accounts of what happened, I feel like that hopefully led to responsible representation of the events in the film. 
maybe we want to pivot a little bit out of the field of the political, viewing the film as a biopic, right? I, I was having a conversation with a friend and it's interesting how the film is scoped and also where the runtime is spent, right? Because it's not really about Fred, right? It's more about the movement when he was in power. It, in a way, it's almost more a film about Bill because it, it's bookended with Bill O'Reilly. The interview, well, the pretend interview and the real interview. And I feel like a lot of, I don't know, who, who would you say it's fair to say like there's a singular protagonist throughout the film? And what do you think about the, the scope of the film uh, as far as, you know, telling Fred Hampton's life, first telling about the movement, first telling about the FBI plots and how that's handled? I think if you look at the numbers and if you broke it down, I wonder, I would be willing to bet that um, Bill, um, Bill O'Neill has more screen time, honestly, than um, Fred Hampton. And I think it is probably more about the movement. I just bring it up because I think it's interesting because I, I think when I first saw the trailer, which was an awesome trailer, I love how that was cut. You know, I think the trailer I saw was mostly focused on Fred Hampton's speech about being, you know, a you can't kill a revolution, him being a revolutionary and you can't kill a movement and all of that. Going into it, I was perhaps expecting more of a biopic, right? More of a... This is who Fred Hampton was. This is why he did what he did. Well, maybe you could speak to that because I don't, I don't know if there are a lot of biopics I've seen. Honestly, I mean, there's the, I think there's an Elton John movie, isn't there? With the, is that a biopic? Yeah, Rocket Man. Do you know that? Rock, yeah, and uh, I think Freddie Mercury as well. I, I feel like they're most common with musicians, right? Because we've had Bohemian Rhapsody, we've had Rocket Man, we've had Ray. There's even the there's a film with John C. Riley that is like a, a farce of the musical biopic because it tends to be very formulaic in oh it's this kid musician who has a big dream but is you know isn't in a position to achieve it and they just put their heart and soul into getting the their music out there. They get picked up, they get caught up in the fame, they turn to drugs or alcohol or bad habits, enter their blue period, you know, they're like almost overdose or die or something bad happens and then they have like this fantastic return to stage and that's the climax, that's the conclusion of the film and you fade out with them standing in front of a cheering audience. Walk the Line with Johnny Cash is another biopic about a musician. But I feel like at least when I think of biopics, my expectation is, you know, it's the origin, the like height of their, their story, their fame, their achievements. And then at the end, kind of the, the conclusion of like their impact or how they died or, or what happened at the end of their story, where that's not really the, the structure of the film. 
because we come into the film. Well, first we open with archival footage and the fake interview of Bill O'Reilly, which we could talk about because I thought that was a great use of archival footage. And then the the first like real shot after the title sequence is of Bill going to the bar to steal his car. When we see Fred, you know, he's already the chairman of the Black Panthers. He's giving a speech in front of a couple hundred people. It's it's not an origin story at all. It's at least from my perspective, my experience of the film, it's mere weeks before he starts to form the Rainbow Coalition, which is perhaps what he's most famous for. So you really are dropped right into his ape, the apex of his power, right? It seemed like there was a question, is, is the movie a biopic? Um, I guess that's my first question. That's the thing, because there's aspects of it, right? Because in a way, it is telling about Fred Hampton's life. It's telling about his mission, about his... Go ahead. So a biopic is just a movie that like is about a, a person. And yeah. it's like, a, like a, a historical kind of a movie. Yeah, it's a... So like Walking Tall would be a biopic. It's like a biography, but in motion picture form. I, I feel like there's definitely aspects of Judas and the Black Messiah that feel similar to a biopic, but I don't feel like it's it truly is one because it does feel more about the movement. And honestly, it's I think it's mostly about the FBI trying to stop Fred Hampton, right? Because there, though there is a lot of time spent showing the Panthers and showing the formation of the Rainbow Coalition and showing Fred giving speeches, all of the conflict comes from the FBI side, right? That's where our stakes are established. That's where our, our time clock is set into play right? Where they have to get Fred off the streets. They have to kill him before he goes back to prison. So as far as like the mechanics of the story, that's all being driven from the FBI side of it. So if anything, functionally, really the, the FBI and uh, Bill O'Reilly and his handler are acting more in the role of the, the protagonist, right? And then their goals are are being thwarted by Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers because their movement's growing and it's getting out of their control and they have these deadlines imposed by Hoover and the you know constraints of the judicial system and these timelines. So, I don't know. I thought it was a really interesting film and I also thought it was gorgeously shot. I think that might be like if there's a singular thing that stands out the most to me, it was probably the cinematography. I, I It felt so vibrant. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, for me, I thought it was a well-done movie, and, like, it was well-formed. Um, but it has... It's kind of indescribable to me, because I don't know... There's movies like, um, like The Revenant, you really notice, I guess, the camera work. Or there's movies like... Uh, I think it was... A, yeah, Ari Aster's movie. I guess, well, either Midsummer or, or uh, Hereditary, which we talked about, it, where it seems like it has a really distinct style. There's just something about, I guess, the way it's presented that I think comes from the director. It seems to have a unique voice. And I think personally for me, this one didn't really have either of those. 
but it seemed, yeah, like it's just really well formed. So it's hard to, like, if we're going to get analytic about it, I, I don't know why. One thing I noticed in the film, in the cinematography was during Fred Hampton's speeches, uh, well, both Daniel Kaluuya and the camera are really animated. He's walking through the crowd of the young patriots, right? And the, the camera is kind of, it's constantly moving through the crowd and, and we're seeing the audience and we're seeing Fred in front of them. And I, I feel like that contributed to the emotion. And obviously, I mean, Kaluuya gave a, a standout performance. He came across as such a powerful orator in all of his scenes. But I feel like the, the cinematography there helped sell the emotion of of these these speeches, you know, where he's rallying crowds to his cause. I mean, it's a historical movie, so I thought it did seem like it was, I guess, out of time is a way to put it. Like the set, I don't know what you would call it, the set design or the costumes or both seem well done. Yeah. I noticed like, like, I think it was the cops in particular, like they had those squad cars that looked pretty retro. Yeah, that would be a challenge in and of itself from a production standpoint and just it's it's very costly to shoot period pieces for that reason because you have to worry about every little detail from costumes to automobiles to buildings to everything to make it because otherwise you know if you forget one thing if you have a car from the 2000s on the street it kind of ruins the whole illusion i did find the bookends of the film interesting both because it opens with Lakeith's portrayal of Bill in the interview for Eyes on the Price 2, and then it ends with the actual interview of Eyes on the Price 2. Do you have any thoughts on that or on the use well, of archival footage? I mean, I just thought, yeah, I don't know. Well, that was used to good effect. I think it's pretty, like, I guess, a common convention, though. I think it's it's interesting they made a point of saying that like he killed himself later that evening, but they didn't really, I guess, dot the I there. It seems like you're wondering like if it's a result of of the of the documentary that they made that he was being interviewed for, or if it was related to that to his past experiences. That's interesting because I thought it was pretty. Um... Like, I, I didn't really have a question about it, you know, just the way it's framed um, with Bill saying, you know, the film will speak for itself, right? You can view the documentary and make your judgments about me. And then it says the day it aired, he killed himself. So to me, I didn't feel like there was a lot of room for interpretation in the way of course there's Lucas. He, the order of he's a real guy him. he's a real guy with and those is real experience you know i think there's a lot i mean like he he's not like just a villain you know no i i think i don't know i read it as his shame or or regret for the things he had done at least in my mind i pictured him watching the documentary and perhaps having to to reframe his role in the events that we saw portrayed. 
you know, because in the interview, he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I mean, you can judge me all you want sitting on the sidelines, but I, I was a revolutionary. I was there on the front lines. And I guess perhaps you'd have to see eyes on the price too, to see how it, how it painted, paints the picture of these events. Yeah, I think so. You know, and okay, maybe this is a bad thing to say, but it is a film. And the fact that O'Reilly commits suicide ties in very well thematically with the premise of the film of framing Fred Hampton as a messiah and Bill O'Reilly as Judas Iscariot because both are people who were traitors to their leaders who ended their stories with suicides, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I, I think it is unfair to, you know, call Bill O'Reilly a traitor or, um, you know, a villain because... It's fair to call him a traitor. <laughs> but, well, I mean, no one's a villain in their own eyes. He, he wasn't a Black Panther, right? He, oh, yeah, he was well, yeah, it's true. Hoodlum. You gotta consider, yeah, where he came from, like, he wasn't... Yeah, Black Panther he, first. He's a and then, double agent. And then, he's not a traitor in my mind, but... He didn't change sides. He, he was always on his own side. And he was in a rock and a hard place, right? Yeah. You know, look out for his own injuries, save his own skin. Like anyone that, would. That was one thing I wanted to say is... So at the end, we have the title card where uh, Fred Hampton was 21 when he was killed. That, that doesn't come across because, you know, Lakeith and... Uh, Kaluuya, they're in their 30s. So you don't realize that the, the the main characters in the film, they're barely 20 years old. When Lakeith was when Bill O'Reilly was first brought in by the FBI, he was 17 years old. So, you know, I, I think it's very fair to, to give some kind of leniency or, you know, to question how willing of a participant he was in all of this. If he's a 17-year-old kid, he's, you know, being told by the government, who they talk about the role of the government, right? Having a badge is having an army behind you. It's scarier than a gun. It's scarier than a knife. It's the scariest thing these guys are up against. And they take a 17-year-old in and they say, hey, you'll go to prison for six years or you'll do exactly what I say. What do you think about Jesse Plemons' character? I thought it was kind of interesting. He didn't, because he, yeah, I don't think he had a lot of screen time. He seems kind of like, he's kind of enigmatic, I think, in a sense, because he's, he's doing, you know, he's doing his job. He's working against their interests. You think he's kind of a villain in that way? I don't think there's much of a struggle in it for him, but I think there is some, because there's like that weird conversation about, um, uh, who was it that asked him like it one of the boss men of the FBI what he would do when his daughter brings home a black man and like he, he's kind of uncomfortable and he's wondering like why are you asking me this I don't think he's like a as much a crusader in the same way like the other higher ups are that like set the agenda and and um, established the Black Panthers as an enemy um, but he's willing to do his job you know so that's kind of how I read him. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that, especially that final part of 
he's willing to do his job. I think a major theme in the film is the corrupting influence that these like larger entities or systems, you know, organizations can have because the the film kind of takes time to make a point that he isn't a flat out racist, right? I feel like he he did make an effort to take care of of Bill, you know, and maybe that's just because he wants information. But initially, I think he gets like fired up listening to Hoover speak. And so he like goes out and he finds this CI and he wants to, you know, prevent this black messiah because I think I, I read the character as sincere when he talks about the KKK and the Black Panthers are the same, right? And he just is out there to promote peace and keep the status quo. I think it does engender a question about the benefit of keeping the status quo because kind of the whole purpose behind the civil rights movement and Black Panthers and Black nationalism is that the status quo is inherently unfair to Black people and other minorities. So... You know, it's it's an act of revolution to try to change the the systems that are in place. And it kind of shows the dangers of just being a cog, you know, to take an extreme example, you know, a, a Nazi who's just following orders would have still done terrible things, you know, not that the officer went to the extent of a Nazi, but you you also see... I think you do see a, a change in the course of the film of like how involved he is because he goes to come from questioning like is it fair that we're you you sent an informant in who killed somebody and you're not taking him into jail because it can help you like get information on the Black Panthers and raid them. Um, so I, I just wanted to say, I think you see the character change from questioning. Well, from first, he's gung-ho about the mission, right? And he's doing it his way, finding a informant and planting him in the organization. And then you see him kind of question the methods that the FBI is employing when they don't take in a, a known murderer because it can help further their cause. And then he kind of goes back where he's all, he buys into that. And he he uses this murder that the FBI helped, you know, cover up to keep putting pressure on Bill. And so I think you see he, he really, I, I think that's an interesting arc that kind of, one of the themes to me is the danger of these organizations and how just being, you know, along for the ride is contributing to the issues at hand. There before the grace of God go I. I don't know, I thought it's interesting. I learned that I well, I seen it was the uh, the wife, Deborah, and um his son. I think it was a junior. Um I guess they're still involved and the Black Panther still exists in some form today. Didn't have to do with the movie, but I guess it's yeah, it's just that's again. I think I kind of said that already, but that's what I like about it. Chance to learn about something you don't know a whole lot about. 
that that's one thing I do want to say. Whenever I watch films like this or, or Spotlight or anything that is taking real life events for the story is it always makes me question how accurate they are and we've talked a little bit about the veracity of events and the need to shape them to create a better narrative um but it's kind of a two-edged sword in the case on the one hand you don't want to misrepresent the events but on the other hand the film can you know draw needed attention right i think one of the reasons that films like this get made is in the hope that it can spark a conversation Thank you so much for listening to Notes from the Silver Screen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it. We'll be back right here in a couple of weeks with a special guest. I wonder if uh, Kaluuya has like a background in like stage performance at all. It wouldn't surprise me.